It's 6 o'clock in London. It's 1 p.m. in New York, 1 a.m. in Hong Kong, 3 a.m. in Sydney, 10 a.m. in San Francisco. Good morning. And 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Good evening to you. Greetings. Good morning. Good afternoon. And good evening, depending on where you are in the world, ladies and gentlemen. In the week gone by, Apple surged over a $2 trillion market capitalization this week, while UK sovereign debt, with recovery now not seen until at least 2022 in some quarters, has just peaked above £2 trillion. After a generation of dissolute financial management under the Osbrown era, and more recently, of course, the COVID cash splash. The perils of COVID, volume umpteen, are writ large for our financial scale this week by the world's oldest continuously published magazine. The Spectator of London notes that the virus is even impacting ambitions to get rid of the pound in our pocket in favour of cashless transactions. Or rather, to be precise, it's the yen in our pocket, as Japan is running out of 16-digit combinations for card numbers amid a surge in online shopping during the pandemic. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's ambition to double the ratio of cashless payments to 40% by 2025 and ultimately to 80% in the future after that has a big 16-digit number issue ahead of it. That's a problem, given that Japan has roughly 20% cashless transactions amongst its 125 million citizens, it's lagging behind in the region. The 51 million South Koreans lead the pack with more than 96% cashless transactions. In the middle between China and Japan is the vast population of China at 66% transacting cashless day by day. More of China's payment situation in a moment. Meanwhile, one stunning fact from China, the Chinese peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms owe over 800 billion yuan to investors, according to Chinese regulators. That amounts to a hefty $115 billion in American terms. Not surprisingly, Chinese regulators have been cracking down on P2P, which appears to have been, well, rather out of control. But back to payments. Jack Ma, his ant financial group, filed for a dual listing in Hong Kong and Shanghai today. And what a stunning IPO lies ahead, with profits of $3.5 in the first half of 2020, that's American dollars, and looks to be on the verge of surpassing even the mega Saudi Aramco offer on Tadawal, which raised $29.4 billion US dollars last year. And of course, Jack Ma's own Alibaba IPO in New York is the second largest in history on Japan the 19th, on September the 19th, 2014. And Financial's Alipay app has an active client base of 729 million annual users, amounting to 53% of the Chinese third-party payment market. 53% of the Chinese third-party payment market, I repeat. Estimates are the IPO value could top 232 billion. Now, with 30 billion cash raise on a circa 230 billion dollar market cap, and compares favorably with the US stock market in its entirety, where IPOs to date are on target for a record year, having raised somewhere around 60 billion dollars so far. Coming soon in the USA, Palantir. Airbnb, as we discussed last week, and DoorDash, not to mention delivery staple Postmates and cloud data firm Snowflake, 
all lining up to make it the best IPO year in the United States of America since the dot-com bubble. But it looks as if Hong Kong and Shanghai will share the laurels for the biggest IPO of the year, if not the biggest IPO of all time, by some margin. Back in the USA, the median S&P stock has never been more expensive, thundered the Wall Street Journal this week, as the stock market bull burst to new highs on the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq indices, while the Dow Jones Industrials are barely a thousand points from their previous record. That said, of course, IPOVID Live began last week with a note to the effect that the stock market is going up, up and away in the USA, albeit index concentration is a concern for many. Top 10 names in the S&P 500 now constitute more than 27% of the index's market weight, according to MarketWatch. Now, with indexes an epicenter of portfolios around the world, who better, ladies and gentlemen, to respond? restore, replay, reduce, and indeed discuss and explore the topic than the man who led the world's leading trading index powerhouse until recently. Alex J. Maturi has been interested in all manner of deploying indexes and using them for investment and hedging and portfolio management since 1987 and rose to head S&P Dow Jones indexes until his retirement Actually, just a matter of several weeks ago. Alex, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome. You are live on IPO Vid. Thank you for having me today, Patrick. It's a pleasure to have you all together, Alex. Tell us, where in the world are you today? So I'm sitting in lovely Chatham, New Jersey, which is about 25 miles west of New York City. Uh, still living through the pandemic here, although things are getting a little bit better. Uh, as uh, Every day getting a little bit better nowadays. Good to hear that everything's getting a little bit better every day. Obviously, that won't quite enthuse the V-shaped recovery enthusiasts, but it's better be getting better step by step than worse, right? So, Alex, tell me a little bit about your career. I mean, you've been in the index business for a long, long time. Yes, yeah, probably a little bit more than I cared to. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, as you know, I just retired from S&P Dow Jones Indices, where I've been uh, since uh, 2007. Uh, running the index business, and it was certainly a glory times uh, to be in the index space there. Uh, before that, I started my career uh, back in uh, in the mid '80s, uh, uh, traditionally as as a fundamental analyst at first, and then getting into the derivatives world, uh, trading options and then options and futures, and getting more into the index investment management. And I spent a, a good number of years at uh, Bank of New York, uh, Deutsche Asset Management, and then uh, Northern Trust. Uh, running index funds and running the index business here before joining uh, S&P. So uh, I think I have an interesting perspective on the index world, having been both a, a customer of uh, S&P and of S&P's uh, competitors, uh, and having seen the business from uh, from both sides, both as a user of indices and then uh, most recently over the last 13 years uh, uh, in the licensing and managing the uh, the index business itself. Fascinating altogether. And let me just ask you one question, because you're the first person we've had on the show who has retired in the middle of COVID-19. That must have been a bizarre experience heaped on a bizarre experience. Uh, To say the least. In fact, uh, my office is still packed away the day I left it in March when uh, we knew that uh, we were going to be working from home. not knowing when we'd get back in. So uh, my successor took over in, uh, in mid-June and uh, 
you know, Dan, the uh, clean office that I promised him. So I'm going to have to get back into the city one of these days to clean everything out. But uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we learned through uh, through this uh, pandemic is the resiliency of a lot of businesses. A business like ours actually has done quite well, um, you know, because it's an asset light business and, and again, been able to get through this quite, quite well. And so it has taught us a lot. I think it taught a lot of businesses lot about uh, how they're going to be able to operate in the future. It's fascinating indeed what you say because obviously you've undergone this incredible experience. In some ways your office is rather like the Marie Celeste of CEOs. You, you've ended up going away from it without even being able to return to it because of the problems we have. And of course we have had the odd occasion where that has happened in isolated offices before like say in, in the SARS epidemic there were problems in Vancouver and some other places. But the big macro picture, I mean, the index business, you started hedging, I do believe, and using index, indexes, futures and options in like 1987. That's pretty much like a different world to where we are now. Yes. In fact, uh, some of the early indices that uh, people used back then uh, don't exist anymore. Um, you know, clearly the use and number of whether it be individual options or futures contracts that were around and how they were used was nothing like it is today. And of course, you didn't have an ETF business. The, uh, the amount of indexed assets and in, in mutual funds and index funds was, was tiny. Um, so it's been, a, it's been an interesting ride to see the growth. Uh, I don't think anybody back in those days could have uh, foreseen how big this business got uh, over, the, over the past you know, 30 years. It's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely mind boggling. I agree. I mean, I remember when I started in this business, I used to do charts and I was sitting in the brokerage office doing charts and I had a, a set square and the set square was proclaiming the merits of the Kansas City Board of Trades value line futures. I think um, that was the first uh... I think that was, that was the first, first futures contract, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was the first futures contract. And actually, I think what is very interesting is that obviously, in the, the 1980s and into the, the 1990s, we had this incredible situation where the S&P was and has been the grandfather of traded indexes in the derivatives world for a long time. But at the same time, we didn't even have Dow Jones indexes because they didn't actually come to the futures industry for a long time. I mean, until what, the mid, late 1990s? Uh, I forget exactly when. And there was, there was a lot of history, you know, Dow. Um, before we took it over, you know, it was still owned by the, the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, and then News Corp. Um, and, and they just had a different philosophy in terms of uh, licensing its use. And in fact, uh, one of the interesting stories is how the e-mini contract was developed um, was in response to the fact that the Chicago Board of Trade won the bidding for uh, the Dow contract. Uh, at the time, that was thought to be the one that was going to be the, the big winner. And uh, the CME at the time uh, thought that uh, they were stuck with the second best, which was the S&P 500, but they decided to try to go with an electronic version of it. Um, and then the rest has been history because uh, we know what happened with the Board of Trade. The Dow contract never picked up the, the amount of usage that the S&P 500 has over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's interesting. A lot of times at the indices, the first mover isn't always necessarily the one that becomes the big player later on. As you mentioned, value line, um, you know, you can go through a litany of the old contracts that no longer exist. Uh, the knife contract, there's a whole bunch of futures and index option contracts that no longer existed that uh, predated uh, the use of the 500.
Actually, that's a, that's a great trip down memory lane. I remember all of those, the Knife Futures contract, which was such a funny thing because the New York Futures Exchange, I mean, it was on Nibot, so they had, you know, coffee and also they, they had, what you know, grains and all sorts of bits and pieces of commodities, and then all of a sudden out the side they had a stock index. And the same thing with Kansas. And indeed, yeah, you look at how many of these indexes just haven't worked over time, which is quite sensational, and you look at, yeah, there's so many examples. So actually, I mean, we're going to go to a question in a minute. We've got a great question in from Chris Messina, an excellent previous guest on this show and also one of our, well, absolutely best uh, questioners that I can think of. He probably should be doing my job some weeks. So the thing, Alex, I'm interested in there is you talk about this whole, walk us back a little bit through the history because S&P Dow Jones indexes, that's a series of quite amazing deals in the index business as well. So, yeah, so the uh, S&P, of course, had been in the index business for many years. You know, both S&P and Dow grew out of what would be more the traditional world of indices out of publications. Um, back in the early days, whether it was when the Dow was first created, which was to help sell the Wall Street Journal. How do you explain uh, movements of markets? And you're trying to sell what was then a daily news, uh, like a news sheet before it became really a newspaper. Um, Charles Dow had to create an index so that he could explain what was going on in the markets those days. Um, and for many years, that's all it was. And uh, even, uh, you know, Standard & Poor's, which was in the railroad, uh, uh, railroad bonded business, I believe. And I'm not even sure why they started the S&P 500, but it started back in 1957 when the 500 was created. I think there's a predecessors. Uh, but again, it was just a publication. It was just information, news. Um, it wasn't really until... Uh, the 80s when he started, maybe the 70s, I guess, with the index funds, you know, uh, John Bogle started the uh, Vanguard Index Mutual Fund uh, at about the same time that there were some institutional uh, funds. So there's a big debate over who started the first fund tied to whether it be the S&P 500 or other indices. Um, but that's all, all within about a year of each other. Uh, a lot of the index managers all lay claim to being number one in one facet or another. Um, but it did start the growth of the use of indices, and, and the growth since then has been uh, dramatic. And, and then the business shifted, really, from this publication mindset to the basis for financial products and the basis to measure markets. And uh, that's where you really started seeing the growth as the derivatives market couldn't exist without an index, uh, the index fund market, um, clearly the swaps markets, uh, structured products in Europe. Uh, and indices started sprouting all over the world as a basis, not just of measuring markets, but giving investors the way to gain access to various types of markets, both understanding how those markets operated, um, measuring the performance. Again, that's a traditional use of indices, but at least from the S&P side uh, as a basis for investment products. And we had had a long history with uh, a CME due to the futures contract. And uh, CME always had this dependency, as you know, exchanges that trade uh, derivative contracts have a, have a licensing dependency on their index. Um, and CME was always smart enough to try to try to lock up uh, that licensing because the risk to the exchange of losing a license, as we saw recently with uh, with SGX and our friends at MSCI when they moved some of, their, some of their contracts over to, to Hong Kong, yeah. uh, could be could be uh, quite dramatic. Um, so over the years, we'd had discussions, you know, CME always wanted to own the index business. So there was no reason for McGraw-Hill at the time to sell it. They didn't need the money. They didn't, you know, it's not a, a indebted company or anything. So 
again, very good low, uh, commercial relationship. But um, back, uh, I think it was about 2010 or 11, we started talking about kind of the future of, of the world. And uh, we actually decided, uh, they asked us if we wanted to go in and, and um, help buy uh, the Dow Jones index business with them. We said, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to change our trajectory. We were trying to become more mm -hmm. global. Um, we did say we were interested in uh, another index business. Uh, I won't mention the names, but we jointly bid for that business. It didn't go very far. Um, okay. It was something that fit more our strategic needs. And uh, that, that, that did bid did not go far, as I said. Um, but it did lead to further discussions with CME of, like, how do we build a better partnership with them? And of course, by that point, they had bought Dow Jones and they said, well, would you operate it for us? You take out all the expenses, you know, because there's scale, certainly in index businesses. We said, again, well, you know, again, that's not a lot of interest, right? We don't want to be just an operator of somebody else's index business. You get the upside and we have all the operational headaches. But it did leading to the discussions around forming a joint venture. Um, and the joint venture was pretty unique at the time because it, it solidified, number one, the relationship for CME, right, because they have effectively a perpetual license for the 500 as long as they stay in the joint venture. Um, but also from our standpoint, um, it gave us a lot of protections because S&P, uh, I still talk as if I'm still there, but um, S&P also effectively owns a piece of their equity complex. Um, and a lot of people forget that. So, you know, from an S&P standpoint, what if, Someday CME decides to try to create a competing index or licenses the Russell or some other contracts that, you know, they start putting all their muscle behind that. Um, so we wanted to be protected against that. And so part of the uh, part of the, the, the transaction was that we would get paid based on anything that traded or cleared on the CME platform. And that was also important because this was, you know, post financial crisis thought to be more movement of. Uh, over-the-counter transactions into a clearinghouse. Uh, and so the structure was set up so that basically, uh, while they have this, you know, a vertical silo with the uh, index license, uh, S&P effectively has a almost almost as if they own ownership of a part of the exchange, even though there is no direct ownership. Um, yeah. But but it's set up for an interesting, you know, relationship because, again, it cemented the, the long-term relationship, um, but it also helped open up a lot of doors. And so... What made the deal possible, though, was the Dow asset, because how do you put together a business, right, to create a joint venture, you have to contribute assets. And, and yeah. as I said, McGraw-Hill didn't need cash. Uh, you didn't want to have a taxable event because these are low-cost businesses, as you can imagine. Um, so the assets of Dow coming together with the assets of S&P is what allowed the joint venture to be created in a tax-efficient structure. That's fascinating. And you mentioned, I mean, the whole history is really interesting. And certainly the dynamism of the CME, I think, cannot be underestimated in this regard. I mean, they appreciated the strategic hold that that had. And similarly, we saw, of course, in the index business in Europe, a similar sort of deal being done where the Financial Times Stock Exchange Index was prized, that FTSE business was prized away from various publishers to become part of the London Stock Exchange Group. And that brings us, because you were mentioning the financial crisis, which was a sort of background to when this deal was all coming together, this excellent question we have from Chris Messina, which is really, really useful. So, you know, how did the regulatory capital changes around Dodd-Frank impact the index arbitrage business for big dealers? Did any market participants find the new regime beneficial? So that's a 
question a little bit outside my direct domain knowledge, but I would say is that sort of the index arbitrage process is still quite, quite liquid, right? So you still have a lot of arbitrageurs that are in there that make sure that that linkage exists. Um, what I would say, though, is we've seen a shift of some of the over-the-counter trading back into futures. So you now see uh, exchanges have developed total return futures contracts as an alternative to a total return swap, um, mainly because the banks don't want to carry you know, The capital charges are too high for the bank. So, again, they effectively offload that to an exchange. Um, so I think that trend um, from a capital efficiency does, uh, does make sense. Um, but I think that that trend in terms of more on, on exchange trading of the plain vanilla products does make sense because, again, the capital is a lot cheaper if you trade it through a clearinghouse than you would if you have to carry it on your books. That doesn't mean that there's still not a lot of OTC trading there is in, in a lot of these contracts, um, but there's other benefits, other reasons why they might want to do it for insurance, pro you know, insurance products, for example, a lot of times they're done OTC uh, because of the long dated nature of it. So. Um, again, it's not, as far as I know, it's still not mandated to clear through a clearinghouse, but uh, I would imagine at some point uh, that may come to it. And that was part of the bet that we made in terms of um, making sure that we got paid, whether it was something that was traded or cleared uh, through someone like a CME. Um, we'd also done a deal um, about the same time where we licensed OCC for cleared index options. Now, that never really materialized because the regulators never got to that point of, of forcing clearing of index options through a clearinghouse. But again, we were thinking ahead that, uh, again, as a, as a, from a licensing standpoint, we wanted to be indifferent as to whether it was a traded or whether it was traded on exchange or traded over the counter. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we were, you know, everybody was licensed properly. That, that's a very clever move also, given the fact there's quite a different structure. Say, for example, in Europe, where you get a lot of that business can go OTC. And yeah. Also, the way that they even trade a lot of options kind of upstairs via the electronic systems and so on. It, it's, it's understandable you were trying to capture the total amount of revenue. So, I mean, it's interesting, though, because walk us through the process, because, you know, when you started playing with, say, portfolio management and index derivatives and so on in 1987, we hadn't even thought about exchange-traded funds. And if we fast forward to say 2000 AD, suddenly exchange-traded funds became a really meaningful part of the business. You've seen multiple, I mean, new product sets grow out of the index business in your career. And that's the, and that's the beauty of it, right, is that there's so many uses for indices and um, you know, the index business is such a scale business. The idea, certainly if you have an index, especially like the 500, that can be used in so many different ways. And um, you have to remember that, uh, you know, even a firm like S&P, uh, we had last count something like 800,000 indices that were calculated every night. So there's a lot of indices out there. And people will always ask, well, why do you need so many indices? And, and the real reason is not everybody uses all of them clearly. Um, but because there's so many different uses for some of these indices, right? And people want different variations of it. And they may be different sector versions, different slices and dices, different currency versions. Um, and with the development of new product sets, again, the scalability of a business is nice when you can use that same index uh, and, and then distribute it in many different ways. You know, we refer to it as the wrapper, right? So an ETF is a wrapper the way a futures contract's a wrapper or an OTC swap is a, is a wrapper. Um, so from a business standpoint, having it used in all these different uh, means of distributing it to meet the various requirements that clients might have, right? Why does somebody want an OTC swap? 
versus somebody else that wants a futures contract? Why does somebody want it in an ETF format? Somebody else wants it in an index fund format. Um, there's different reasons. It could be tax spaces. There could be uh, uh, different preferences. It could be regulatory reasons. Um, so the key is they just get them to use the index and then make sure that from a business standpoint, of course, they're all licensed for, uh, for that. Um, you know, the next big phase may be uh, token, right? Um, you know, right before I left, we were starting to look at, can you use tokens as a way to license product providers, right? I mean, that may be the, the, the future going forward. You know, again, still to be determined, but you have to think forward in terms of uh, how you're going to license your intellectual property. It's a never-ending story of opportunity, the index world. It's quite fascinating because, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the fact of, you know, 800,000 indexes. And then when you go back, okay, I realize a lot of those are based on other things other than purely traded equities. But there are only, what, 50,000 traded equities the world over. Um, but admittedly, lots of the indexes are based on bonds and based on all manner of different yes. things as well. But it is interesting that the index world has come to, to dominate our lives. So from the cash market through to the, the, the derivatives world. I think when you use a word like dominate, the lawyers get a little nervous. But uh, I, would say, <laughs> I would say it's a growing business, uh, even in the U.S., which is a heavily indexed market. I think our estimates last I saw was around 25 percent was indexed. Um, you know, 25, 30%. So it's still got a long ways to go. I mean, you still have a lot of assets that sit in mutual funds. You still have a lot of assets that sit in individual securities. Um, so yes, indexing is growing. Um, it's visible through the ETF marketplace. But, you know, when you think about ETFs, ETFs are just another way of distributing investment product. And yeah. so, you know, an ETF could be anything, right? And sometimes people think of an ETF as, number one, it's an index and it's, a, it's an equity index. Well, that's not the case. You have ETFs now across all asset classes. Um, you have now even active ETFs. You have non-transparent or as they call semi-transparent ETFs. Um, you know, it's just another means of distributing market exposure. Um, and so again, yes, there's a lot of indices because investors, you know, to be honest, they, they want that. You know, if there is a, again, it's relatively cheap to develop new indices, um, but People want to capture exposure and they like the exposure in the market in a very cheap, transparent, repeatable format. And that's the one thing that indices really um, provide to investors. Right? It's, it's that cheap, transparent exposure to a market. And, you know, we've done that. S&P has always done a lot of studies on, on the performance of active managers versus passive. And again, there's some very, very good active managers out there. But I think what all the studies, all the academic studies show is that it's very hard over time um, to beat the market, beat the broad market. Um, and if you can provide a product that has a lot of inherent advantages, lower turnover, cheaper product set, that's actually good for investors. And the amount of money that's been saved by investors investing in index funds and ETFs has been tremendous. And that's a boom to the growth of, of the capital markets. And provides a good benefit for society. I mean, it allows people to save more money for whatever their purpose is. It provides more efficient products, more transparent products. Um, indices provide all that that for, for all these different types of uh, usage. Well, actually, that, that reminds me, just so we can have an old piece of history back here, my first book, Capital Market Revolution, which dates back to 1999, it was published by Financial Times Prentice Hall, 
And the funny thing about that was I started talking then about the nascent exchange traded fund business. And actually I called it index trackers in the book because even the ETF name only came out somewhere during the labyrinthine printing process, but, but not before. And it was very interesting how at the time I find myself being taken out for drinks and very unpleasant lunches where fund managers were extremely upset because they were never, you know, I had to understand that there was never going to be a day when the 500 basis point load on a mutual fund was going to go away. (laughs) Before they'd managed to satisfy demand for the book by the end of the year, I think we were already at 50 basis points. And that's, I mean, to your point, that's one incredible example of how indexing and exchange traded funds created amazing amounts of value because let's face it i mean people nowadays they expect to go on to robin hood and, and buy in and out of an etf in a nanosecond for nothing and you compare that to you know the cost of, of mutual funds as they were in dominant in say 1987 i would say there's no free there's no free lunch clearly as we know and of course absolutely like robin hood yeah. but but yeah no i think but i think giving giving investors those sort of um cheaper alternatives has been actually good for markets, right? It's driven trading. We see the same thing with derivative markets, right? Whether it be futures. Futures were a way to get exposure to markets in a way that eliminated a lot of the friction and costs of trading. Um, And so they boomed, right? When they went electronic, spreads narrowed, liquidity improved, costs went down, and volumes went up. Um, And so again, you get that same scale effect, whether it be a fund or whether you get it on the derivative side. And I think net net that's that's a positive, right? And the other thing that I think a lot of people forget about the index, right? And the most successful indices are if you can build that ecosystem. And again, I think the 500 is is a very unique animal, right? It is by far the most used index in the world. But the ecosystem around that, whether it be the leading futures contracts, leading volatility trading tied to it, leading use in index funds, that all creates its own liquidity pool on top of it. It makes it even more successful. Um, and to the extent that you can build that sort of ecosystem, um, you know, even other exchanges that have tried to emulate that, and you want to have ETFs on your index, and you want to have futures contracts, and you want to have it used in mutual funds and as a basis for performance measurement, um, that all helps build that ecosystem in a way that actually helps and drive more trading back to the exchange, which is, again, one of the reasons why a lot of exchanges got into the index space in the first place. Absolutely. It's been incredible for liquidity. And I think you're right. I mean, the S&P story, though, to my mind, is also one of not just the 500. It's even in the options world before we had index features when you had the S&P 100 options, which for so long were dominant on SIBO. And I can remember in the open outcry era, no one could ever believe that SIBO's S&P 100 options could be surpassed by anything. And yet nowadays you look at the fact that there are what, 10 or 20 different futures options related processes, including ETF futures and so on, and, you know, large contracts, mini contracts, micro contracts. It's incredible. And the super liquidity of the yes. S&P 500, it, it's just out of this world. It, 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 it is actually, it is mind boggling. And, you know, when you think about it, it's become the first 24 hour traded index. Yeah. You know, it trades 24 hours a day. There's the amount of liquidity that trades in Asia dwarfs many local indices. Um, yeah. which, which is mind-boggling. Now, again, it helps when you know the 500 represents the U.S. equity markets, and the U.S. are roughly what 45 percent, 40, 45 percent of the global equity uh, uh, capitalization. 
So again, you know, as soon as somebody starts investing outside of their home country, um, they're going to look to the U.S. and they're going to look to the liquidity of the U.S. markets. And they're going to look also uh, to the rule of law that you have in the U.S. and people feel comfortable. And as we know, you know, with clearinghouses and with derivatives, you know, where the clearinghouse is located, the, the, the laws around protecting that are very, very important. And people trust the, the, the system in the U.S. And, and I think that helps uh, always cement that as really uh, the, the centerpiece, certainly for, for derivatives trading. Well, I mean, also in that respect, I mean, the U.S. system has fundamentally worked. And that's something that is to the long-standing to be complemented amongst CME and the Intercontinental Exchange and so on, because the system's incredible. It manages to trade come what may, and the clearinghouses have succeeded all the time. And you're right. I mean, the, 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 the whole idea, I still find it quite unnerving that on a Sunday evening in Europe, you can be sitting watching the S&P 500 index trade with actually greater liquidity than I can remember things like the FTSE index trading when I was in the business you know, on the floor of the life exchange in the late 1980s. That's absolutely stunning. And obviously, computer power is something we have to thank our lucky stars for in that respect. Yes, and, and the linkages, you know, again, you can be anywhere in the world and you can trade as long as you have access and there's not capital controls on, on the market. Uh, and again, it's not just the 500. You can do that. You know, you should be able to do that with any liquid contract like the Euro stocks or any of the other big liquid contracts. Um, you know, again, I think it's a testament to what CME and even SIBO have done in terms of building the liquidity for their products and their marketplaces um, and exporting that. You know, Globex was... Uh, a phenomenal way for CME in particular to bring liquidity uh, all around the world just through a, through a terminal, right? So you didn't have to have something trading locally. You could have a trade in Chicago uh, and still be able to tap into that liquidity no matter where you're sitting. And that, that was, you know, when you think about it, that was earth shattering when they first developed that, that concept. And again, I think you're going to see more of that. Um, and, you know, it, it does call into question again, you know, do, do you, when you think about exchanges and derivative marketplaces all over the world, you know, are they going to start getting concentrated into a few, few centers? You know, I mean, I think it's important that exchanges survive in their local markets. They're important to, to raise capital. It's very important for countries that have an exchange. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, exchanges are technology platforms and technology companies tend to uh, roll up. Um, you know, I think exchanges are different, as we've seen, you know, cross-border exchange mergers are, are very, very hard to get done. Um, but at the same time, the technology that's there allows investors to tap into markets very, very easily anywhere in the world. Uh, and products like ETFs and derivatives make it easy for anybody to get exposure to almost anything at any time of the day or night, which is phenomenal when you think about it. It is incredible. And you, and you hit on a very, very interesting point, which is if you can come up with a globalized product that people around the world readily recognize that they want to trade and they're willing to trust wherever it comes from. And in this case, we're looking at the S&P products, which as you rightly say, whether it's the CMEs, the CBOs, they have such an incredible footprint around the world and propelled by that Globex system. I can well remember in the early 2000s, the rollout of Globex at the point when Jim McNulty was CEO of the CME and Scott Gordon was chairman. And they did an incredible job to bring an electronic presence of mind to lots of traders 
who frankly ought to be trading on other exchanges in Europe, but they found it so easy to connect. It was so well organized and ultimately cheap and it provided them with liquidity. And liquidity is so much of a key. As long as you can get in and out of a trade, then you've got an opportunity to go somewhere. Absolutely. And people, we see it now, you know, um, you know, we talk to the people from CME and they'd be able to tell us from time to time where the orders flows coming by country of origin. And you could see, you know, some of these markets where you'd, you'd be shocked at how much trading is coming out of these markets. And it's because people have just good electronic access, right? And you could be sitting anywhere in the world if you've got fast internet connection and you can plug into uh, any of these trading systems. Again, it doesn't just have to be Globex, um, but you could be active in any markets anywhere. And, you know, and I think that's good. I think that's actually healthy because you'd like to see liquidity not dry up the way it was in the old days, right? Where at four o'clock New York times, everybody would shut down and go home and that was it till the next day. Um, you know, things happen 24 hours a day and the world is, is much more active at all times. So ideally you'll see more and more ways for liquidity to build up, um, you know, so that people can access and manage your risks any time of the day or night. Yes, it's very interesting when we watch those sorts of index products because you obviously have the cash markets which almost finitely have to close at a certain point in time and then they get into the next session with after hours trading. Whereas the futures and the options on the S&P just thunder straight through. The bell seems to be only a little bit of trailing noise. And people are like, oh, so was that the bell? Oh, whatever, let's keep trading. And the only thing that it affects is actually whether they're paying margin for yesterday or today. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's what an hour, half hour. There's some they have to reset the systems. That's about it. And I'm sure at some point they'll be able to solve that problem too and get that down to some short short time period. I'm sure it will do. And it's very interesting because I mean going back through the history of indexes, of course, I mean I can well remember, you know, indexes used to be difficult to calculate. I mean, they're still difficult to calculate, don't get me wrong, whether you're a Dow Jones average or whether you're any of the other ways that indexes are calculated, but it used to be difficult to simply process all the data. I can remember the FTSE 100 in London was only published actually every minute, which caused a great deal of excitement after about 45 seconds for those who had ADHD in the, in the index trading pits. And it's, it's fascinating to see just how the, the scale of computing power has powered the trading of the markets, but also the ability to calculate indexes, because now if indexes aren't appearing in real time, we almost think there's something wrong with our screen. Yeah. And in fact, you know, it, it, maybe people don't always realize, but um, there are like the, the stat arb and the arbitrageurs are actually calculating an index value uh, faster through their co-location hookups than, than S&P would, um, you know, because they can they know what the rules. You know, again, legally, they're able to buy the data. Uh, they know what the index should be doing and they co-locate. And so they're getting their data that much faster. And they're calculating, and that's that's their advantage. And but they provide a liquidity for the marketplace, so I think it's it's actually quite healthy that they're able to do that. Um, so it's it's a it's a natural evolution that people will want to calculate things as fast as they can, and and maintain those the linkage between those two markets. Yeah, they keep the markets honest at all point in time while adding to your business. It must have been incredible for you. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, please don't let this just become a conversation with Alex and I. Fascinated as I am, I'm delighted to carry on the conversation. If you've got a question, send us a message on any of the social media that you have around and about you. Somewhere where you're watching this to the right or the left or above or below the screen, you should have a button which will allow you to chat to us. And we will be delighted to take your questions or comments. Thank you very much. And 
it's very interesting looking at the technology because even in the time when you were actually at S&P itself, notwithstanding your previous experience with Northern Trust and so on, the technological change was quite enormous over that period of time in terms of what indexes could do and how you could keep processing in real time. And, and not only just in real time, but, you know, uh, being in New York, you know, I had been, uh, I was at Deutsche Bank when we went through 9-11 and we had to shut down um, when the market shut down because we had lost our, our building. And, you know, one of the things that it taught me was about redundancy, business redundancy and business continuity planning. And um, so, you know, when I joined S&P, that was, you know, top of list was, you know, how do we make sure um, that the 500 is calculated no matter what? And uh, so we built in more redundancies. You know, we, we operated uh, off of S&P's own technology platform because it didn't meet the standards that we needed, right? We needed to be at the same standard levels as exchanges. And so the data centers that we used had to be the same data centers that the exchanges were using. So that, again, we were always plugged in um, because you couldn't, if there's a, as we had a hurricane in New York uh, and you have a pandemic, uh, you can't just sit there and say, sorry, we're not going to calculate our index because uh, we couldn't get to the office today. So, you know, you have to build in those sort of redundancies. Um, you know, again, it's all the stuff behind the scenes that people don't realize, but be, they become critical because if you're sitting in Tokyo and you're trading, um, you don't want to have to worry about whether, you know, there's a bad weather or there's a subway strike in New York and somebody can't get in to do their job. So, you know, we had built those sort of redundancies into our system. Um, and that's part of the value proposition that big index providers have, right? That, you know, the big customers, not just the individual traders, but big ETF providers or exchange partners. I mean, we ran uh, real-time indices for about 15 exchanges. Um, they had to be up no matter what, you know? It couldn't be that, well, New York is having a holiday, so sorry, we're not going to publish it that day. Um, you know, you basically operated a 24 by 7 business because we operated in the Middle mm -hmm. East. I think we had finally got to one, you know, our teams were actually off one day. Um, but, you know, that's kind of all the behind the scenes that becomes critical to a successful index business is being able to deliver for markets that are operating 24 by 7. Even if in any one country they may not be uh, open, somebody's open someplace and you have to make sure you're, you're up and running. Absolutely. It's like those sort of kids shows that they used to have where men spun plates on poles and ran around to try and get as many plates going as possible. But with there's so many moving parts to it. And obviously, you know, when you were running S&P, you had S&P Dow Jones indexes. I should get the whole name together. Sorry, Alex. When you were running the business, I mean, you saw also a material expansion. So we saw a material expansion in the number of indexes in the way the technology was being deployed and therefore the redundancy of the technology. You saw growth into a whole load of new product areas such as ETFs and so on. And, and a whole expansion, I mean, volatility indexes, goodness knows, everything was going on suddenly was much more interesting. But also there was geographical expansion. Yes. I mean, we had an enormous period of globetrotting. Yes, uh, I used to spend about two weeks a month on the road someplace, and it wasn't flying in the U.S., I can tell you. Um, and part of it was because, you know, various markets are developing um, in the index space at various, at various levels, right? The U.S., again, is very, very developed. We actually viewed the U.S. as a pretty mature market from uh, how we approached it. Um, we didn't need to do a lot on the ground. We could do a lot more with marketing. And, uh, you know, anytime you put on CNBC, there's somebody talking about our indices and that, that helps. Um, but we saw a lot of opportunities in some of the emerging markets, whether it was in Latin America, whether it was in India, China was an area of interest, Asia. 
Um, because these are the markets that are going to become more indecisive, if, if you want to use a term like that, in the future, right? Their markets are becoming more sophisticated. Um, they're becoming ETFs are developing. Hopefully, we'll see more derivatives trading in these markets. Um, and as investors look for index-based products, we wanted to be in those markets. And so part of our strategy was to do it through exchange partnerships, um, where we would go to an exchange and we say, look, um, we understand the way exchanges operate. Um, exchanges are very close to our DNA, uh, and we'll partner with you. So we'll take on the calculation. We'll take on the commercial uh, abilities um, that, that, again, can really develop new indices very fast. Um, we can take you globally um, because if you're sitting, you know, like our partners in, in uh, Sydney, one of our earliest uh, exchange partnerships was with the ASX. Um, but, you know, they don't have staffs all over the world. They can't, you know, be plugged into anybody that wants to do uh, use one of their indices in London or New York very easily. But we had that covered for them. Um, and so we saw exchanges as a way into a lot of these markets and where uh, somebody like MSCI, which I have the utmost respect for, wanted to be the global provider, you know, the cross-border and global provider for all investors globally selling the same index in every marketplace. Our strategy was to be the local provider in the local market. So we wanted to partner with the local exchange and we wanted to be, you know, the way the S&P 500 is what it is in the U.S., we wanted to be that in, in Japan and in India and in Australia and in every other market that we could uh, we could get into. And so our strategy was to expand uh, from a local perspective. And when you do that, you think about things a little bit differently, right? You think about it from a local investor's perspective, right? Um, uh, a global index might have global standards. You apply it the same, right? So the rules are the same, whether you're in Japan, whether you're in the US. It's the same set of rules, the inclusions, uh, what the cutoffs are, uh, it's all the same. But when you build things from a local perspective, uh, you build it the way the local investors want. Um, so how do you take into account something as silly as a corporate action, right? How, what's the local practice for that? What are the local trading times, right? How are the indices designed so that local investors will want to use it? Um, it gives you a totally different perspective. And that was really the approach that, that we took that drove our, uh, our global success. And at the same time, we we're, of course, bringing in all of our other global indices into that marketplace also. So again, it, uh, it was a good strategy to be able to get in and exchanges. We found were great partners in these markets because they opened the doors to the institutional community. You know, we can spend uh, years knocking on doors uh, coming into a market, but if you had an exchange as a partner, um, they opened up a lot of doors for you. They opened up the doors with the regulators and they're a great branding partner to have in, in, in a lot of these markets. It's fascinating. And I mean, certainly it underlines the incredible differences you have from all of these different exchanges. And actually, I speak from experience here because I used to run a tiny stock exchange in Romania. And we actually licensed a couple of your indexes at the time for futures trading in Romanian lay. And it must be quite amazing to be able to go to these markets because you say everyone has the core of the same practice. We all believe in buying, selling, making a profit, etc. But the minutiae is mind-bogglingly different when you're in India or whether you're in the USA or Japan, et cetera. Yeah, and, and, and the, probably one of the most important things that people forget about is that local brand, right? Mm -hmm. So the exchanges have that local brand in that local marketplace because most of them had already developed it, right? And so, sure, we can go to a market like India and we can go in with an S&P brand, um, but it's much better if you can go in with the Sensex brand, which is our partner, the BSC, 
right? Yep. Because everybody in India knows it. And so what we could do is come in, we could develop new indices, we can commercialize it. We bring the indices up to global standards, which is important because now index providers are becoming regulated. Yep. And so regulators want to make sure that how you manage the indices uh, aren't going to end up in a LIBOR type situation. So again, as an independent provider, we bring all the, all the, the, the governance uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the equation. Um, but that local brand becomes very, very powerful and it's something that we can't build on our own. So again, it really does bring a partnership approach. Um, and again, when you build them then for local practices, so if you think about something like ESG, that's become like the hot new trend in the last, certainly for a while, but clearly in this last year, all you hear about is ESG. Every one of the exchange partners that we had wanted to develop ESG indices. Um, but they all approach it a little bit differently, right? Because every market's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in a, a, a mining heavy market, um, you have to be careful of you can't exclude every company in that in that country um, because you're excluding mining companies because they may do something bad for, to the to the environment. So again, you have to develop it from a local perspective uh, when you develop a lot of these indices, and that's the expertise that we're able to bring to the equation. And it must be fascinating because, of course, not just with ESG but with the index business as a whole, you see such incredibly different bases for national markets. I mean, India is just the most incredible melting pot across the entire nation. It's a continent-sized country, whereas you go to somewhere like Australia, which is also a continent-sized country but way fewer people, a vast amount of extractive in industry, and also then some interesting, you know, some interesting index issues because quite often they have four, five, six really awesome companies and then there's a bit of a gap to the next guys down and it becomes quite interesting trying to mix and match and build things that are essentially stable indexes without a huge amount of turnover for the investors. Sure, and it's very important because again, an index has to be representative of the market, um, but if the market is, is very concentrated, you, know, you, have to, you have to use certain techniques uh, to minimize that that uh, concentration risk. Uh, if you remember back in uh, Canada in the days of Nortel, when mm -hmm. uh, and I forget how big it got, it was 25, 30% of the Canadian market cap was one stock. Um, yeah. So if you didn't cap it in an index, people own too much, it was too much risk. And you know, you hear people talk about that now in the US, right? You know, is Apple too big, right? Or the, like you, the, you pointed out the concentration in the top of the market. Um, but the US is still pretty diversified yet. Um, it's not nearly what it is in, in some other markets where you've got, you know, three or four or five stocks out of maybe 20 that really dominate. And uh, that causes concentration risk. But at the same time, um, that is what the market is. Right. And that's what the market is. And an index needs to represent that market. And so there's techniques you can use. You know, like I said, you can cap uh, exposure, you can cap sector weightings. Uh, there's different techniques that you can use. Um, to minimize it, but now you're drifting further away from it being a purely representative uh, index. And again, in the product space, that makes sense because again, you need liquidity, you need a tradability. Um, but if you're using that index to benchmark performance, really you want that, that exposure the way it is in the marketplace because that is the market. Absolutely, indeed. And in fact, yeah, there was Nortel in Canada. And at the same time, they had a problem in Spain because the Spanish telecom provider, it ended up getting up, I think, beyond. I think it was 40, 50 percent of the entire marketplace. Gradually, Zara turned up and it ended up dominating things, if I remember correctly. Uh, the, the, it's a huge problem. And obviously, 
it's quite fascinating because you're talking about some of the computations. I'm not expecting to have a great discussion about the computation, but it's certainly interesting to reflect on the fact that, you know, the idea of the original Charles Dow creation that was, you know, the average of the prices of industrial transport and utility stocks. It is one thing that looks definitively a hundred and something years old by comparison <laughs> to the, the <laughs> advanced ways in which we're computing indexes now. And, and uh, I think the amount of assets that, that track the Dow versus uh, cap-weighted indices uh, have borne that out. But uh, what's interesting, there's been a lot of studies that, that, uh, that we've done. Uh, certainly, I became an adherent of the Dow. Uh, when we took it over. Um, but if you look at the long-term history of the Dow versus the S&P 500, it's actually quite close, which is interesting. Yes. Um, yes. Again, you know, you go through periods like you, you're going through right now where uh, they're going to diverge, uh, but somehow they always manage to, to, to keep up with each other over time, which is, which is interesting. You know, um, we had a, a historian of the Dow, uh, Howard Silverblatt, that, that has a lot of the, the historical data and, and, uh, you know, it's interesting when you look back at, at some of the companies that have come through and even the changes that were announced uh, yesterday. It's interesting to see the changes. But at the, even the Dow, uh, even though, again, it's price, you know, it's price weighted, like you said, I don't know if they'll ever change the, the, the uh, weighting scheme. Um, but the, the index has evolved. Right. And it does try to represent the U.S. economy. Now, again, it's 30 stocks. Right. And it's an indicator. Right. It's meant to in, be indicative of the marketplace. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not meant to be the whole marketplace. And really, even the S&P 500, people forget that that's not the, the 500 largest companies. Right. And it's not all the U.S. market cap. Um, no. But it is a very, very good representation of the large cap portion of the U.S. market. Um, and because of it, you know, again, it's become so, so widely used. And again, I think the divergence of the use of the Dow versus the 500 over time, you know, again, cap weighted indices represent what the market is, which is a cap weighted creature. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'm not sure why they went down the route back then of, of uh, price weighting and maybe it was easier math. It always seemed complicated to me, but uh, I'm not sure there's anybody around that really knows why they went the way they did. Or you mentioned the value line, which was, if I remember correctly, geometrically weighted, yeah. which I yeah. never could quite understand how that was calculated. But again, you know, there's probably some academics that could explain uh, the history of some of those some of those indices. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think you're quite correct. The one thing that is amazing is how the Dow Jones is a century old and yet still is actually proving to be remarkably modern. With a paucity of changes to the calculation and so on, it actually still works. And I think if you take any other product from the time that Charles Dow invented that, I mean, certainly I don't think anybody would, would say that the original wind-up gramophone, which was just about coming into view at that point in time, for instance, was you know really something you'd like to listen to compared mm -hmm. to your streaming music service or even your CDs or something relatively aged. And, and that's a very interesting point because actually it has proven the point of time and it is still a great and useful product in a way that 90% of the industrial products of the age in which it was invented for have since become utterly obsolete um, or and, you have know, it's hugely modernized. And what's interesting is there are markets where, um, like Taiwan, um, there are futures on the Dow and futures on the 500, and the Dow is by far the more popular index to be used. So there are markets yeah. where people still 
like using the Dow because it's it's well known, right? It represents uh, the American market to a lot of people in Asia. The branding value of the Dow is still is still yeah. quite uh, quite strong. Well, I think the the branding value of Dow Jones is just absolutely mind boggling when you take it around the world. I mean, people just understand that from start to finish, and obviously. I don't know how you feel about that because my masculine intuition suggests, Alex Maturi, that you may have some Italian origins, but it's interesting to see that the Dow Jones is so popular. We've got a great question has come in. Martin Watkins, who is also an alumni of this show, like Chris Messina, who was asking a question earlier. His interview and others are available online. You can catch them via YouTube, LinkedIn as well, if you go and search for us, IPO Vid or myself, Patrick L. Young. So what Martin is asking, he's interested in your view, Alex, of the likely intervention of the GAFA firms into index benchmark data businesses. Can I ask what GAFA stands for? I have to say I'm going to ask exactly the same thing because I'm thinking Gaelic Athletic Football Association, <laughs> and I don't think that's probably what Martin means. So Martin, I know, is watching. He's going to come back with that in a moment. Let me just point out the fact that actually – Alex, I, I congratulate you on being one of the world's most influential people in financial markets. You were listed in this book when it was first published several years ago by dint of your position as an index powerhouse chief. And in that respect, it's, um, it's a joy to have you on the show today as we wait for clarification of GAFA. I'm, I'm glad oh, what I could say, I'll start, I and mean, I think the direction sure. this is going is, you know, clearly there's been a lot of proliferation of new index providers and index data being used for indices. And again, I think that's healthy in terms of the way the business is going, right? You know, people come up with new ways to um, develop indices. I mean, the, the, the actual development of an index isn't that complicated, right? It's a weighting scheme and a pricing scheme that come together. Um, but there are more and more ways, whether it's using uh, artificial intelligence, whether it's using different weighting schemes or different ways of thinking of, of like sectors, for example. You know, the traditional way of thinking of, of sectors has been through um, revenue structures, right? But um, maybe the future is now, we were working on uh, artificial intelligence ways that we're looking at, you know, what companies, not just based on how much revenue they're generating, um, but what ways are they investing in uh, to see what the future holds in terms of new types of sectors, new definitions of sectors, um, things like robotics. You know, you're not going to find most companies saying, well, we're in the robotics business if you study uh, their financial reports. Um, but using AI, you can study a lot about these companies and find out what companies are really focused on something that's not. So there's new ways of, of defining indices new types of data sets um, that you could use, sentiment type data. Um, there's so many different ways of using data that's out there and creating new types of indices, not all for traded financial products, clearly. Um, but I think it's an important evolution of the business that we'll continue to see. Yeah, no, and that's interesting. And actually, I'm sort of feeling a bit of a face palm. But of course, in a world where there are nearly as many acronyms as there are indexes, we were talking about GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, <laughs> Amazon. I should have thought, I should have realized it was tied <laughs> with my fangs, but I didn't actually. Uh, well, they, they certainly have interesting data. And, and uh, we had a team at S&P that looked at uh, different types of data. Uh, in developing indices. And, um, you know, if you think about something, it could be something as simple as scraping pricing data off of websites to determine real-time pricing. 
right? Or even nowadays, you know, you hear about uh, companies that are looking at uh, satellite imagery to see, you know, back when people were going to shopping malls, right? You know, what shopping malls are getting traffic and which ones aren't. So there's a lot of ways of capturing this data that a lot of these firms have um, and using that to help give you insights into the market. Now, is it a traditional index in the sense of it's representing the market? No. But is it an indicator of potential performance? Yes. You know, I mean, it's a way of doing that. Again, as long as it's not forward looking, because that's when you get beyond what an index is and into active management or, or forward looking. And by forward looking, I mean, if you're making estimates of something in the future, making an, uh, an yeah. anticipation of what it is, now you're no longer an index. But if you can capture in real time um, what people are buying on Amazon, uh, that tells you something about what companies are manufacturing, what products are, are doing, or are there people are purchasing. Um, that might tell you what stocks are going to do well. Um, yeah. And again, it's just another way of capturing, you know, real information that helps uh, come up with an investment view. And in that case, um, yeah, it's very interesting new new work. Will that replace something like uh, the MSCIE for the S&P 500? I don't think so. But uh, it does give investors a way to capture, again, different types of market exposure using some of these newer newer techniques. And um, the amount of data that's out there will only give people more ways of applying that to financial securities and create um, new, new products with that. It certainly strikes me that there's an incredible issue out there with all of the data that's going around because it's not going to be any less data. And we look at how well indexes have been deployed over time and built. And actually, one of the things that fascinates me is the pure traffic data. I mean, actually, traffic on roads, information, mm -hmm. and so on, because that's going to provide so much information that's going to be so richly useful for all manner of applications going forward. I mean, good grief. The problem with this topic, of course, is that it is just such a big data one, Alex Maturi. We can carry on for hours. Um, thank you very, very much to Chris Messina. Thank you very, very much also to Martin Watkins for your excellent questions. Um, I note as well, good to see you, Tony Mackay. Thank you very much for the like on Facebook earlier on. It's a joy to have so many illustrious figures from in and around the parish of exchanges and markets with us today, because certainly it's quite incredible to see the big data environment that we live in. And it's quite sensational to look at how many things are actually happening across the whole business. And indeed, if we look out towards the realm of, say, Asia and Alipay and the information that we're getting today, it simply demonstrates that there are so many more products, so many more opportunities for the index world going forward, whether those are as pure investment products or in the world of trading futures and related exchange traded derivatives. Thank you for watching. This has been IPO Vid Livestream 006 in Patrick's opinion with myself, Patrick L. Young, ably aided and abetted by my brilliant guest today, Alex J. Maturi, the former boss of the world's index powerhouse, S&P Dow Jones Indices. And if you were listening, you will have heard, of course, how he's had a Marie Celeste office experience recently. He's hoping to get back and clear that soon, but the COVID closed down robbed him <laughs> of that process. This, ladies and gentlemen, marks an epic moment in the IPO video live stream. This is the end of series number one. We're going to be back in a few weeks time. We're taking a two week break and will return Tuesday, September the 15th at the same time, same place, 1800 hours London, 1300 hours Eastern. Thank you very much to Bata, Ola and the production team. 
And finally, I just want to say one thing. You can see somewhat behind me in my shadow is sitting Toby. As you may recall, he was a star of a previous video series. Unfortunately, Toby is no more. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, on the note of saying the index business will continue, our guest this evening, Alex Maturi, along with all of our other guests from this series, are going from strength to strength. I look forward to seeing some of them back in series two, alongside a whole series of new faces. My name is Patrick L. Young. Thank you very much for watching this IPO video live stream.